This is Couch and Coffee Table. I'm Michael Perry. Well, Couch Surfers, here we are, number 200. 200 episodes as of today. Who would have thought? I wanted to take this opportunity to thank all the people who have been listening to us since day one. I appreciate you sticking around and listening in, and I hope you continue to keep coming back and seeing what we got. Okay, for today's show, we have first up an episode of Suspense called The Devil's Saint, starring Peter Lorre, which aired on January 19th, 1943. I'll be back afterwards to talk about the two Vincent Price pieces we have. Talk to you soon. Introduce Columbia's program, Suspense. Our star tonight is Peter Lorre, playing the part of the Hungarian Count Stefan Kahari, a gentleman of sinister aspect. The story is by John Dixon Carr, who calls it The Devil's Saint. If you have been with us on these Tuesday nights, you will know that suspense is compounded of mystery and suspicion and dangerous adventure. In this series are tales calculated to intrigue you, to stir your nerves, to offer you a precarious situation, and then withhold the solution till the last possible moment. And so, it is with The Devil's Saint and Mr. Peter Lorre's performance, we again hope to keep you in... Suspense. The Devil's Saint. Paris. Fifteen years ago. Paris as it used to be, when lights twinkled from the old Trocadero to the hill of Sacré-Cœur, when taxicabs honked and the beat of tango swayed, and Chinese lanterns gleamed above the lake in the Bois, when, in short, you and I were young. Come then to the President's Ball at the Opera, St. Catherine's Day, 1927. A fancy dress ball at the opera, filling these marble halls with a multitude of masks and a multitude of dreams. The mosaic decorations are no less bright than the colors that weave here. Harlequins and Columbine, Cleopatra and Musketeers. In the great marble foyer, remember it? They have set out little tables and lines of palms behind which you may sit screened. Look at one such table. A young man wearing the scarlet and gold uniform of an English guards officer in Wellington's day. 
a dark-haired young girl in the costume of the Bacante. And as we approach... Ned, don't, please, you mustn't. Well, why not? You really don't mind, do you? No, of course I don't mind, only you mustn't. Oh, Ned. Look here, Alona, we've got to settle this thing. You have enjoyed being here tonight, haven't you? Ned, I've loved it. After being cooped up at my uncle's place in the country, it's like heaven. All right. When I take you back to the hotel, I'm going to face this uncle of yours tonight. No. No, please don't. I'm going to say that you and I intend to get married, and that's that. I can't marry you, Ned. I've told you that. But why not? Just give me one good reason. Because I can't. My uncle, he would never allow it. Never. And that seems to you a good reason enough? Yes, Ned. This uncle of yours, uh, what's his name? Count Stefan Kohari. He's a Hungarian, I think you said. Yes, and so am I. My mother was an American. What's he like, actually? Oh, he's a little eccentric. Hmm? Oh, please don't misunderstand. He's a great scholar and a historian, only... He's a little strange. He... Ned. What is it? There he is now. Your uncle? Yes, that elegant man in plain evening clothes with the order of the golden fleece across his chest. Oh, I see him. Oh, he looks as black as a thundercloud. He's throwing those two dressed as devils aside as though they didn't exist. Give me my mask quick before he sees us. No, Alona. Why not? We'd better face this out now. Sit still. Good evening, Ilona. Good evening, Uncle Stefan. Uncle... May I present Edward Whiteford? How do you do, sir? How do you do? Ilona, do you think that costume is quite the thing to wear in public? Why not? Well, an older generation might call it immodest. It looks like... Like uh, what? Nothing. Will you go and get your cloak or your domino or whatever you wore here? Uncle, please don't make me go home so soon. It's hardly 11 o'clock. I was not asking you to go home, my dear. I was merely asking you to put on a wrap. All right, I'll get it. You stay and talk to Ned. I shall be delighted. Will you sit down, sir? Thank you. <laughs> you seem to have quite a gathering at this table. Oh, yes. Some friends of mine from the embassy, they're upstairs dancing now. <laughs> well, <laughs> look, glasses, glasses, and still more glasses. <laughs> you know, I was quite an addict once at uh, musical glasses. Have you ever tried it, young man? <laughs> well, it's very easy. You take a spoon like this, you see, and... <laughs> like it? Well, forgive me, sir, but there's something I'd like to ask you. Yes? Well, I don't know exactly how to say this, so I'd better say it in the shortest way. I want to marry your niece. Well, look out, sir. You smashed one of the glasses. A few francs will pay for that, but there are other things of higher value, at least to me. Well, maybe I ought to mention first that my full name is Lord Edward Whiteford. My father's the Earl of Grey. Indeed. <laughs> well, I only mention that to show where... Well, respectable enough. Well, the British ambassador will vouch for me, sir, if you'd like to ring him up. And perhaps I ought to mention that uh, I've always kept Ilona carefully guarded from the world. Almost too carefully guarded, don't you see? That, Lord Edward, depends on my reasons. Sorry, sir. You have known Ilona about how long? Four days. Four days. You wouldn't even choose a business partner in four days. Yet to want to marry my Ilona... After four days. Well, we know our own minds, sir. You do, huh? <laughs> then you know more than the wisest man in this world. However, there's one whose dearest wish is Alona's happiness. Sir. I hope it is, Count Kohari. Do you doubt what I say? Oh, no, sir. 
I will make you a proposition. I own an estate in Touraine, not far from Paris, sir. Little chateau, a few hundred acres, fishing. Very good stable of horses. I know, Lona told me. Oh, she did. Well, then here is my suggestion. Why not come down and visit us for a week or two? Oh, that's very decent of you, sir. Oh, not at all, not at all. <laughs> and uh, if at the end of that time you're not cured of this infatuation... Then... Oh, it's not an infatuation. I swear it's not. No? Well, if at the end of that time you're not cured uh, permanently of this feeling, you may take Ilona. And with my blessing, that's fair, isn't it? Oh, it's more than fair, Uncle Harry. I don't know how to thank you. Oh, well, please, don't even try. <laughs> and at least I can promise you a very interesting experience. You see, at the Chateau d'Azé, there is one certain bedroom. We call it the tapestry room. Yes? Well, uh, I assure you, it'll be very interesting for you to sleep in that room. Why? Is it haunted or something? Oh, no. No, 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 not haunted. <laughs> Well, now, if you don't mind, I shall say goodnight, and I hope I can trust you to bring Ilona safely to the hotel. Au revoir. Look over there. What is it, sir? Just look. Streams of our fellow guests pouring down a main staircase. Shapes of nightmare. Shapes of delirium. Insane dead masks. Only the eyes move. Wouldn't we be terrified, perhaps? If he would look behind those gargoyle faces? Oh, no, I don't think so. They're only ordinary people like ourselves. That sure is uh, where you make your mistake. Well, I shall expect you for the weekend. And uh, encore une fois. Au revoir. Ned. Ned. It's all right, Alona. You can come out from behind those palms. What was he saying? I couldn't hear. Alona, it couldn't be better. Well, he's a very decent old boy, actually. And he's invited me to the Chateau d'Azé. Did he say anything about the tapestry room? Yes. He invited me to sleep there. And you said? I said I would, naturally. You mustn't do it, Ned. I won't let you do it. But why the devil not? Because everybody who sleeps in that room dies. Dies? Are you serious? Oh, Ned, please don't do it. Oh, nonsense. There are a lot of superstitions about every old house. This isn't a superstition, Ned. It happened once when I was a little girl. A man insisted on sleeping there. They found him dead in the morning. So? How did he die? They don't know. There wasn't a mark on his body. He wasn't shot or stabbed or strangled or poisoned or hurt in any way. He was just dead. <laughs> nights later, in the province of France, now known as Andre et Laware, but once called Touraine, the ancient land beloved of Rabelais and Balzac. But now, as the wind moans down the valleys, and rain flickers across the apple trees, and thunder stirs in those haunted hills, it can bring little comfort to a young man driven in an ancient carriage from the railway station along snake-like roads. To what? destination. Ahead, a lift of lightning shows the gray walls and conical slate-roofed towers of a chateau set some distance back from the road. 
Light shine from its narrow windows, dimly seen through the rain as... Driver! Coachman! Oui, monsieur. Is that the Chateau d'Azé up ahead? Oui, monsieur. I will take you to the very door if... Uh... If what? Why do you cross yourself? If I am permitted. What should stop you? Only fear, monsieur. And I am not much afraid. This... What's that? Only the dogs, monsieur. They keep many dogs, large dogs, at the Chateau d'Azé. Well, here we are. Bonsoir, monsieur. And if I may be permitted a word of advice... Well? Beware of the tapestry room. the bell on this door, there might at least be a knocker. Ah, got it. Et alors, monsieur? Vous cherchez? Je cherche le château d'Azé. Et je... je, uh, je uh, perhaps it would uh, be better if monsieur spoke English, yes? You are Lord Edward Whiteford. Yes. Monsieur is expected. Please to enter. Monsieur's at and Ned. Hello, Elona. Oh, I brought the palm up a teeth for the uncle. Oh, you'd better not kiss me, Ned. Madame Flay says to look out for my uncle. Madame Flay is our housekeeper. Oh. Well, where's your uncle now? In the drawing room. He's playing the piano. Come along. Elona, is anything wrong? Oh, everything's wrong. Two of my dogs were in horrible pain this afternoon. Dr. Solomon had to put them out with chloroform. You don't think... That... I hope nobody's practicing, that's all. Well, here we are. Oh, nice tiger skins on the floor. I say, who's the little old man with the gray beard sitting over there by the fire? That's Dr. Solomon. Oh, hasn't he funny-looking eyes? He watches and watches and watches. He's an old friend of the family. Shh, come along. Let's get this over with. Ah, Lord Edward. <laughs> well, I see my niece has anticipated me. Welcome to the Chateau d'Azé. Thank you, Count Harry. Oh, you must be very wet after your long drive. Go up to the fire and warm yourself. Uh, uh, Madame Flay. Yes, monsieur? Uh, please tell Antoine to take our guest's luggage up to the tapestry room. The tapestry room, monsieur? That is what I said, Madame Flay. Yes, monsieur. An odd coincidence, Lord Edward. Dr. Solomon and I were just discussing the fate of the last person who slept in a tapestry room. This is not good, my friend. This is against my advice. <laughs> it's against his advice. <laughs> Here, Dr. Solomon croaked. This is not good, I tell you. It is the wrong season of the moon. Uh, the wrong moon. <laughs> but there is no moon tonight. It's raining cats and dogs. Don't talk about dogs. Nevertheless, it is the wrong season of the moon. I say no more. Cheerful blunder, that doctor. Don't do it, Ned. I won't be responsible if they make you do it. But uh, look here, Count Harry. What did happen to the last bloke who slept in the tapestry you room? You mustn't call him a bloke, sir. He was a very saintly gentleman. The Bishop of Tours. That was some time ago when Delona was only 15 years old, but uh, surely she must remember it. I remember it. The church, said our bishop, 
has no use for superstitions. Well, <laughs> he insisted on sleeping there. I, I made it as comfortable for him as possible, but he was found dead next morning with a crucifix still in his hand. Was it poison? There was no poison, monsieur. No. <laughs> Here, Dr. Solomon. It's true, Ned. Well, there were just two very curious things. You see, in uh, connection with that death, on a mantelpiece there was found burning a stick of incense. Just ordinary incense, nothing wrong with it. Yes, sir. And uh, under the dressing table, the police found it with an empty jar of ointment. Now, here's your wits. A dead man, some burning incense, and an empty jar of ointment. What do you make of that? Oh, I don't make anything of it. It's crazy. Please do not speak like that. I'm sorry? It is still the wrong season of the moon. Well, what I really meant, sir, was this. Is, is there any reason for this story of death? Reason? Any legend attached to the room or anything like that? Yes, there is. Well, sir? Well, we are a very old family, Lord Edward. Old and perhaps accursed. When my ancestors moved from Hungary to France in the 17th century, they brought certain beliefs with them. The old religion. The old religion? Yes, the cult of Diana. The cult of Janus. The cult of freedom and fertility. The witch cult, if you prefer. Oh, now look here, sir. Must we talk about this? Well, you smile, but... Uh... When I see the word witch, you think of some humorous picture on a Halloween's card. It was very different in the Middle Ages, believe me. Then, my friend, there existed an organized religion which rivaled the church. There were many to worship unashamed at the Grand Sabbath. Many to receive all favors from Satan, their master, and to dance forever joyously in a red, flaming quadrils of hell. Some 200 years ago, an ancestress of mine, Katerina Kohari, was tortured to death in a tapestry room for professing the old religion. Many persons have not thought it safe to sleep there since. Are you answered? Oh, come, sir. This is some kind of elaborate joke. Hmm? Joke? The Bishop of Tours did not find it a joke. Not the mark on his body. I assure you as a physician, not the mark on his body. <laughs> no, not a mark on his body. <laughs> here, Dr. Solomon. Yes, I hear him. Well, understand me, Lord Edward, there's no compulsion in this. If you do wish to sleep in that room, all right? Oh, if you ridiculous. don't... I'm not afraid to sleep there, sir. Well, I thought perhaps you wanted to change your mind. Oh, Never. Would you like me to make a wager on that? What sort of wager? Well, if I spend the night in this famous room and come out of it alive... Yes? Will you give your consent to the marriage immediately? Tomorrow morning? Tomorrow morning? Why? Because I don't think the atmosphere of this house is good for a loner. What do you say? Will you do it? Very well, Lord Edward. I accept the terms of your wager. Don't do it, Ned. For the love of heaven, don't do it. High up in the north tower of the Chateau d'Azay, under the conical slate roof, 
is the circular room hung with faded tapestries. These tapestries move slightly with uneasy, mimic life to the clamor of the storm outside. Candles burn along the mantelpiece and beside the great four-poster bed. The flames of these candles waver, too, as the door opens. This is the tapestry room, monsieur. Thank you, Madame Flay. That is the mantelpiece where the incense burned. That is the bed where Monsignor Le Bishop died. Very inviting, isn't it? Will there be anything else monsieur requires? Some sandwiches, a decanter of whiskey? Oh, no, thanks. I had a drink with the Count Cahari before I came upstairs. Pierre, monsieur? Uh, monsieur's shaving water will be brought up in the morning. If he requires it. Good night. Trying to scare a fellow out of his wits just because... Oh, I hope they've built a good fire anyway. Didn't realize how cold it was. Temperature must have dropped. What's that? It's me, Elona. May I come in? No, Elona. Get out of here. That's not very gallant of you. No, I mean, I, I don't want you exposed to whatever it is. Ned, listen. Are you going to bed? Or are you going to sit up all night? I'm going to sit up all night, naturally. Then... Let me sit up with you. No. Why not? Well, it may be dangerous. Besides, I promised your uncle I'd go through with this alone. I wish you hadn't had that drink with him. Why? He couldn't have done anything to it. It was you who poured it. Yes, that's true, only... Listen. Who's that? It sounds like footsteps. Yes, but where's it coming from? Seems to be right here in the room. It seems to come from all directions. Doesn't it sound like somebody walking between the walls? By George, it is someone walking inside the wall. Get behind that tapestry, Lona. Quick. Hide there. Yes. Count Kohari. Where did you come from? Oh, forgive me, Lord Edward, for seeming to appear out of the wall and between a tapestry. <laughs> like Mephisto appearing too fast, huh? <laughs> and this red dressing gown perhaps adds to the effect, too. <laughs> How'd you get here? A passage between the walls? Yes, exactly. Little devise my ancestors for visiting this room. You know, they invented that when its occupant was so unmannerly as to bolt the door. <laughs> Door's not bolted. You could have walked straight in. But I couldn't have done it unobserved. No. Maybe not. Have you had any other visitors? Lord Edward? No. Are you quite sure of that? Quite sure. Well, then, uh, since nobody saw me come here, I'll just sit down by the fire. <laughs> Please sit opposite me. Is this the showdown, sir? Hmm? I don't understand. Well, there's got to be a showdown between us. Is that why you're here? Oh, I'm here, young man, to explain certain things to you. Uh, will you have a cigarette? Thank you. I... Oh. <laughs> They're perfectly all right. That is what you're afraid of? I'll have one, yes. A light? Thank you. Well, when I was discussing the witch cult a while ago, you didn't appear to think I meant what I said. Do you want a perfectly frank answer to that? Yes. I think you're mad enough to mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> what you say in a sense is quite true. Seen an old and uh, inbred family like ours... The mind can crack in the fantasies of witchcraft, become as real, well, more real than the living world. Let me give you an example. 
Go on. The saucer on a table beside you is Ming porcelain. It was once owned by Katerina Kohari, a martyr of the old religion. Yet you are using it as an ash tree. Oh, I beg the witch lady's pardon. I'll blow off the ash. Well, that's a very dangerous remark, sir. Don't you understand that the worship of evil can be as strong and compelling as the worship of good? That the devil can have his saints, too? That to a sick brain which knows but can't help itself, you have profaned this room merely by entering it. And therefore, you deserve to die. Like the Bishop of Tours? Exactly. You're not going to tell me the devil killed him. The devil's agent may be flesh and blood. Then it was murder. Oh, of course it was murder. Murder so cunningly contrived that no one ever saw through it. Go on. I asked you before to use your wits on this problem. Well, look, incense was burned in this room. You know why? Suppose you tell me. Well, obviously, I think, to conceal something else, which would be too easily noticed. To conceal what? For instance, the smell of chloroform. Chloroform? Yes. A drug not really well understood by laymen. Dr. Solomon, by the way, was using chloroform this afternoon to dispose of some dogs. So I've heard. Well, Dr. Solomon is old and uh, very forgetful. You mean chloroform could be stolen? Oh, yes, it could be easily. Now, suppose, I mean, just suppose I take a pad saturated with chloroform. I place it over the mouth and nostrils of a man already sleeping or drugged so that he gets no air. Wait a minute. That, that won't do. Why not? Chloroform burns and blisters when it touches the skin. You leave marks. Oh, not at all, my friend. Not at all. If I first covered the mouth and nostrils with some substance like... Ointment. Uh, yes. Now you're waking up. Hi. Now observe what follows. In a few seconds, unconsciousness. In two minutes or three minutes, death. Certain death, yes. Oh, but chloroform, you see. <laughs> it evaporates very quickly. There is no trace in the stomach since nothing has been swallowed. Well, delay your post-mortem for 24 hours. Very easy matter in these country districts. And no trace remains in the blood. Murder without a mark, Lord Edward. Murder without a mark. You can't do it, Count Kohani. There's one thing you're forgetting. What is that? I'm not sleeping and I'm not drugged. Oh, yes, you are. How? When? In the cigarette? Hmm? No. In a drink you had with me. What was it? Morphine. And you've had enough to put three men to sleep. Ah. See, that's it. Well, try to get up. I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> you see? You've knocked over the fire irons. You'd have been in a fire yourself if I hadn't caught Take you. Take your hands off me. Just as you please. If I could reach that bell pull. Well, but you can't. Well, better sit down again. You murdering lunatic. So that's how you killed the Bishop of Tours. And that's how you're going to kill me. Who, I? Well, you don't think I killed the Bishop of Tours. Didn't you? You fool. I'm not trying to kill you. I'm trying to save you. Dr. Solomon. Yes, Monsieur. Well, come out, come out. Come in the room. Come out and be my witness. Yes, monsieur. I shall always guard the family honor, even when I guess how men die. This young man evidently thinks I've been talking about myself. Am I in a popular parlance, 
Insane? Oh, monsieur. Heaven forbid. I have never known a saner man. Have you any notion, Lord Edward, why I brought you to this house? You would never have believed me if I had merely told you. So I had to bring you here to show you. Show me what? What? <laughs> look, look at the tapestries. Come out of there. Come out of there. Hey, come out. Elona. Yes. Yes, Elona. Why do you think I've kept Elona so well guarded from the world? Why, at a fancy dress ball, for instance, did I object to the costume of a medieval witch whose dogs were poisoned so that chloroform should be brought? Who poured the drink drugged with morphine? In the devil's name, what are you trying to tell me? It was Ilona. She's been helplessly, hopelessly insane for more than ten years. <laughs> Peter Lorre. Tonight's tale of suspense. This is your narrator, the man in black, who conveys to you Columbia's invitation to spend this half hour in suspense with us again next Tuesday. the producer, John Dietz, the director, Bernard Herman, the composer-conductor, and John Dixon Carr, the author, are collaborators on... Suspense. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. For our second segment, we have Vincent Price narrating The Goblins in the Bathhouse by Ruth Manning Saunders. This was released as an LP in 1978, I believe. It has never been released on CD, but it should be. So, here's The Goblins in the Bathhouse, read by Vincent Price.
In the little town, there was a bathhouse where old and infirm people went to have baths and massage. And there was a young girl attendant there whom all these old people loved because she was so kind and helpful to them. Well, one day, so many old people came to the bathhouse that it was late at night before the girl had finished her work and could think of going home. And as she was tidying up and putting away the brushes and the sponges and the towels, she heard in the street outside the bathhouse a rattling of wheels and a jingling of harness and a clatter of hooves over the cobbles. She ran to open the door. What did she see? A magnificent golden coach drawn by four black stallions with gold and silver harness and bells on their forehead straps that rang out gaily as they tossed their plume-decked heads. Surely, thought the girl, this must be the wedding coach of some rich lord. But stepping out of the coach, what did she see? A hideous little goblin man with glaring eyes and bandy legs, and after him stepped out three younger goblins, even more ugly, and after the three younger goblins stepped out an old, old woman goblin, hideous and evil. The girl quickly made the sign of the cross over the threshold, ran back into the bathhouse and slammed the door. Go away, go away, go away, she whispered under her breath. But the goblins didn't go away. Although they couldn't come over the threshold because of the sign of the cross the girl had made, so the hideous little goblin man called out, Come out here to me, my little daughter. Your bridegroom awaits you. I have chosen you as wife for one of my sons. The girl was very frightened. But she kept her wits about her, and she called back, I am not ready to be married. I have neither clothes nor shoes. Then the goblin man called again and said, Only tell me what clothes you need, my little daughter, and you shall have everything your heart desires. And as the girl stood thinking what next she should say, a little mouse crept up to her and whispered, Listen, listen. Don't be in a hurry. Tell the goblin what clothes you need, but tell him slowly, a garment at a time, for the dawn will come, but not yet. So the girl called out, First of all, I need a silk chemise. Then the old woman goblin said to the three young goblins, My grandchildren, which of you can go the quickest there and back again? And the eldest of the three young goblins said, I can go as swiftly as a wave. And the second said, I can go as swiftly as the wind that drives the wave. And the youngest said, But I, I can go as swiftly as a thought. I am here, I am there, I am back again, all at the same time. Leap then, little grandson, said the old woman goblin. Leap, leap, leap. Your feet are your fortune. It is you who will win a lovely bride. The youngest goblin leapt and vanished. He was here, he was there, he was back again, holding in his claws of hands a silk chemise. The old woman goblin threw the silk chemise in through the window of the bathhouse. Here is your silk chemise, little daughter.
Put it on and let us go, for the wedding bells are ringing under the earth and the wedding guests are gathered together. Take your time, take your time. The dawn is yet far off, whispered the little mouse, and the girl put on the silk chemise slowly. Oh, so slowly. Is the silk chemise to your liking, little daughter? called the old woman goblin. Yes, it is to my liking, said the girl. But I am not yet ready. I have no golden gown. Go you quick as thought said the old woman goblin to the youngest of her grandchildren. Leap, 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 be here, be there, be back again, and bring the bride a golden gown. The youngest goblin leapt and vanished. Then, in the winking of an eye, he was back again, carrying in his claws of hands a golden gown. The old woman goblin tossed the golden gown in through the window of the bathhouse, and the little mouse whispered to the girl, Loiter, loiter. The dawn is not yet. The girl put on the golden gown. Slowly, oh, so slowly. And the goblin grandmother called from outside the house. Is the golden gown to your liking, little doctor? Yes, it is to my uh, liking, said the girl. Then come out, little daughter, called the goblin grandmother, for under the earth the wedding feast is spread. But the girl answered, I am not yet ready. I lack an embroidered girdle. Leap quick as thought said the goblin grandmother. Leap, 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 be here, be there, be back again, and bring the bride an embroidered girdle. Quick as thought, leapt and vanished. He was here, he was there, he was back again, carrying in his claws of hands an embroidered girdle. The old woman goblin tossed the embroidered girdle in through the window of the bathhouse. Leisurely, leisurely, whispered the little mouse to the girl. The moon shines dim over the rooftops, but the morning star is still bright. There is no dawn yet. So the girl put on the embroidered girdle. Slow. Oh, so slow. Is the girdle to your liking, little doctor? Called the goblin grandmother from outside the door. Yes, it is to my liking, said the girl, but I am not yet ready. My feet are there. I lack a pair of silver slippers. Leap, leap, quick as thought. Leap, leap, leap said the goblin grandmother. Be here, be there, be back again. Bring from down below a pair of silver slippers and win for yourself a lovely bride. 
quick as thought, leapt and vanished. He was here, he was there, he was back again, carrying the silver slippers. The old goblin woman tossed the silver slippers in through the window of the bathhouse. Linger, linger, whispered the little mouse to the girl. The dawn comes slowly nearer. And the girl put on the silver slippers. Slowly, oh, so slowly. Are the slippers to your liking, little doctor? Yes, they are to my liking. But I am not yet ready. I lack a diamond headdress. The old goblin woman sent quickest thought to fetch a diamond headdress. And when he brought it, she tossed it in through the window of the bathhouse. Little daughter, little daughter, she called. We cannot wait longer. Down under the earth, the wedding candles are burning low. And the wedding guests are muttering and complaining. Is the headdress to your liking? Yes, it is. To my liking, said the girl. Then put it on and come out quickly, called the old goblin woman. You will have to go out now, whispered the little mouse to the girl. But look in the coach and find fault, for the dawn is at hand. So the girl opened the bathhouse door and stepped out. There she stood on the threshold like a king's daughter, with the gold of her gown and the diamonds of her headdress gleaming and glittering. Step! Into the coach, little daughter, said the old goblin man. And he opened the coach door and stretched out a horny hand to help her inside. But the girl drew back. Oh, no, no, the coach is not to my liking. The seats are too hard. Too hard, little daughter, said the old goblin man. Too hard? The cushions are covered with silk and plumply stuffed with goose feathers. I am not used to traveling on feather cushions, said the girl. I must have the coach strewn with hay. The old goblin struck his hands together. What can we do? Down under the earth there is no hay. The girl looked up at the sky. The moon was dropping down below the houses. The morning star shone over the rooftops. And there in the east, did she see a glimmer of the dawn? No, not yet. I uh, ride on hay... Or not at all, she said. The goblins began to scream and chatter. Hey, hey, where could they find hay? The goblin grandmother took out her eyes and flung them up into the air. They whirled around in a circle and came back into her head. I have seen hay, she screamed. In a field outside the big city over there, I have seen a haystack not yet bound with ropes. Bring hay, quick as thought, 
Leap, leap, be here, be there, be back again. Bring hay, bring hay. Quick as thought, leapt and vanished. He was here, he was there, but he was not back again. The goblin screamed and danced with impatience, and the girl stood by the coach and looked up at the sky. Then a huge bundle of hay came rolling along the street and stopped beside the bathhouse, and from under the bundle crawled quick as thought. He was blue in the face and panting, and sweat streamed off him. The other goblins grabbed up the hay in armfuls and began stuffing into the coach. Hurry, 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 they screamed, tumbling over each other. Dawn is coming. They had the hay in the coach at last. The old goblin man seized the girl by the arm and said, Get in, you hussy, he yelled. The girl put her foot on the step of the coach. She looked down at the ground. There is um, yet one wisp of hay lying there, she said. You must put that last wisp into the coach or I do not enter. The four black stallions pawed the ground and whinnied. They flung up their heads, and the bells on their forehead straps rang out. The old goblin man snatched up the last wisp of straw and tossed it into the coach. Now get in, he shouted. I get in last, said the girl, as befits a modest maiden. Then all the goblins crowded into the coach. The old goblin man stretched out his hand to help the girl in. The girl glanced back and up at the sky. Yes, in the east, the dawn was breaking. Cock-a-doodle-doo, cock-a-doodle-doo. All the cocks in the little town began suddenly to crow. At that sound, coach, horses, coachman, old goblin man, old goblin woman, and the three young goblins gave one last despairing yell and vanished. The girl stood alone at the bathhouse door. Her golden gown and her diamond headdress glistened in the dawn light, and the little mouse crept out of the bathhouse and stood up on its little hind legs and squeaked, Well done, my lovely one, well done. Now take me up in your hand and carry me home with you, and I will find a prince to marry you. So the girl took the little mouse up in her hand and went home. Before I talk about our final segment, I just wanted to mention that there were a lot of uh, audio narrative uh, albums on uh, vinyl things that uh, Vincent Price put out in the 70s. Uh, a lot of different things where he was basically just reading a lot of different stories or ghost stories and the like. Uh, some of the titles included Secrets of Witchcraft and Magic, Tales of Witches, Ghosts and Goblins, A Coven of Witches Tales, A Graveyard of Ghost Stories, uh, a horn book of witches. All of these things had various little stories and 
things of that nature that Vincent would just tell. No, no real music or anything behind it, just Vincent being a storyteller. And a lot of these things were put out on vinyl back starting about 1969 on through. With today, uh, what you just heard was side one of one of those albums, uh, The Goblins at the Bathhouse. For our final segment, I thought I'd play the B-side of that Vincent Price vinyl. And the B-side is called The Calamander Chest, and it was written by Joseph Payne Brennan. So, here's The Calamander Chest, read by Vincent Price. the Indies, sir, said the second-hand dealer, pressing his palms together. Genuine calamander wood, a rare good buy, sir. Well, I'll take it, replied Ernest Marx, somewhat hesitantly. He had been strolling idly through the antique and second-hand shop when the chest caught his attention. It had a rich, exotic look which pleased him. In appearance, the dark brown, black-striped wood resembled ebony, and the chest was quite capacious. It was at least two feet wide and five feet long with a depth of nearly three feet. When Mox learned that the dealer was willing to dispose of it for only $12, he could not resist buying it. What made him hesitate a little was the dealer's initial low price and quite obvious pleasure upon completing the transaction. Was that fine-grained wood only inlay or did the chest contain some hidden defect? When it was delivered to his room the next day, he could find nothing wrong with it. The calamander wood was solid and sound, and the entire chest appeared to be in fine condition. The lid clicked smoothly into place when lowered, and the big iron key turned readily enough. Feeling quite satisfied with himself, Mox carefully polished the dark wood and then slid the chest into an empty corner of his room. The next time he changed his lodgings, the chest would prove invaluable. Meanwhile, it added just the right exotic touch to his rather drab chamber. Several weeks passed, and although he still cast occasional admiring glances at his new possession, it gradually began to recede from his mind. Then one evening his attention was returned to it in a very startling manner. He was sitting up reading late in the evening when for some reason his eyes lifted from his book and he looked across the room toward the corner where he had placed the chest. A long white finger protruded from under its lid. He sat motionless, overwhelmed with sudden horror, his eyes riveted on this appalling object. It just hung there, unmoving, a long, pale finger with a heavy knuckle bone and a black nail. After his first shock, Max felt a slow rage kindling within him. The finger had no right to be there. It was unreasonable and idiotic. 
He resented it bitterly, much as he would have resented the sudden intrusion of an unsavory rumor from down the hall. His peaceful, comfortable evening was ruined by this outrageous manifestation. With an oath, he hurled his book straight at the finger. It disappeared. At least he could no longer see it. Tilting his reading light so that its beam shot across the room, he strode to the chest and flung open the lid. There was nothing inside. Dropping the lid, he picked up his book and returned to the chair. Perhaps he reflected he had been reading too much lately. His eyes, in protest, might be playing tricks on him. For some time longer, he pretended to read, but at frequent intervals, he lifted his eyes and looked across the room toward the calamander chest. The finger did not reappear, and eventually he went to bed. A week passed, and he began to forget about the finger. He stayed out more during the evening and read less, and by the end of the week, he was quite convinced that he had been the victim of nothing more than an odd hallucination brought on by simple eye strain. At length, at the beginning of the second week, deciding that his eyes had had a good rest, he bought some current magazines and made up his mind to spend the evening in his room. Sometime after he took up the first magazine, he glanced over at the chest and saw that all was as it should be. Settling comfortably in his chair, he became absorbed in the magazine and did not put it aside for over an hour. As he finally laid it down and prepared to pick up another, his eyes strayed in the direction of the chest. And there was the finger. It hung there as before, motionless, with its thick knuckle and repulsive black nail. Crowding down an impulse to rush across the room, Mox slowly reached over to a small table which stood near his chair and felt for a heavy metal ashtray. As his hand closed on the tray, his eyes never left the finger. Rising very slowly, he began to inch across the room. He was certain that the ashtray, if wielded with force, would effectively crush anything less substantial than itself which it descended on. It was made of solid metal, and it possessed a sharp edge. When he was a scant yard away from the chest, the finger disappeared. When he lifted the lid, the chest, as he had expected, was empty. Feeling considerably shaken, he returned to his chair and sat down. Although the finger did not reappear, he could not drive its hideous image out of his mind. Before going to bed, he reluctantly decided that he would get rid of the chest. He was in sound health, and his eyes had had a week's rest. Therefore, he reasoned, whatever flaw in nature permitted the ugly manifestation rested not with him, but with the chest itself. Looking back, he recalled the second-hand dealer's eagerness to sell the chest at a ridiculously low price. The thing must already have had an evil reputation when the antique dealer acquired it. Knowing it, the unscrupulous merchant had readily consented to part with it for a small sum. Max, a practical young man, admitted the possibility of a non-physical explanation only with reluctance, but felt that he was not in a position to debate the matter. The preservation of stable nerves came first. All other considerations were secondary. Accordingly, on the following day, before leaving for work, 
He arranged with his landlady to have the chest picked up and carted off to the city dump. He included specific directions that upon arrival it was to be burned. When he arrived back at his room that evening, however, the first thing that met his gaze was the calamander chest. Furious, he hurried down the hall to his landlady's apartment and demanded an explanation. Why had his orders been ignored? When she was able to get a word in, the patient woman explained that the chest actually had been picked up and carted off to the dump. Upon arrival, however, the man in charge of the dump had assured the men who lugged in the chest that there must have been some mistake. Nobody in his right mind, he asserted, would destroy such a beautiful and expensive article. The men must have picked up the wrong one. Surely there must have been another left behind, he said, which was the worthless one the owner wanted discarded. The two men who had taken the chest to the dump, not feeling secure in their own minds about the matter, and not wishing to make a costly mistake, had returned the chest later in the day. Completely nonplussed by this information, Mox muttered an apology to the landlady and went back to his room, where he plopped into a chair and sat staring at the chest. He would, he finally decided, give it one more chance. If nothing further happened, he would keep it. Otherwise, he would take immediate and drastic measures to get rid of it once and for all. Although he had planned to attend a concert that evening, it began to rain shortly after six o'clock, and he resigned himself to an evening in his room. Before starting to read, he locked the chest with the iron key and put the key in his pocket. It was absurd that he had not thought of doing so before, this would, he felt, be the decisive test. While he read, he maintained a keen watch on the chest, but nothing happened until well after eleven, when he put aside his book for the evening. As he closed the book and started to rise, he looked at the chest, and there was the finger. In appearance, it was unchanged. Instead of hanging slack and motionless, however, it now seemed to be imbued with faint life. It quivered slightly, and it appeared to be making weak attempts to scratch the side of the chest with its long black nail. When he finally summoned up sufficient courage, Max took up the metal ashtray as before and crept across the room. This time he actually had the tray raised to strike before the finger vanished. It seemed to whisk back into the chest. With a wildly thumping heart, Mox lifted the lid. Again, the box was empty. But then he remembered the iron key in his pocket, and a new thrill of horror coursed down his spine. The hideous digital apparition had unlocked the chest. Either that, or he was rapidly losing his sanity. Completely unnerved, he locked the chest for a second time, and then sat in a chair and watched it until two o'clock in the morning. At length, exhausted and deeply shaken, he sought his bed. Before putting out the light, he ascertained that the chest was still locked. As soon as he fell asleep, he experienced a hideous nightmare. He dreamed that a persistent scratching sound woke him up, that he arose, lit a candle, and looked at the chest. The protruding finger showed just under the lid, and this time... It was galvanized with an excess of life. 
It twisted and turned, drummed with its thick knuckles, scratched frantically with its flat black nail. At length, as if it suddenly became aware of his presence, it became perfectly still, and then very deliberately beckoned for him to approach. Flooded with horror, he nevertheless found himself unable to disobey. Setting down the candle, he slowly crossed the room like an automaton. The monstrous beckoning finger drew him on like some infernal magnet which attracted human flesh instead of metal. As he reached the chest, the finger darted inside and the lid immediately lifted. Overwhelmed with terror and yet utterly unable to stop himself, he stepped into the chest, sat down, drew his knees up to his chin and turned onto his side. A second later, the lid slammed shut and he heard the iron key turn in the lock. At this point in the nightmare, he awoke with a ringing scream. He sat up in bed and felt the sweat of fear running down his face. In spite of the nightmare, or because of it, he dared not get up and switch on the light. Instead, he burrowed under the bedclothes and lay wide awake until morning. After he had regained some measure of self-composure, he went out for black coffee and then, instead of reporting to his job, rode across town to the modest home of a truck driver and mover whom he had hired at various times in the past. After some quite detailed and specific plans had been agreed upon, he paid the mover ten dollars and departed with a promise to pay him an equal amount when the job was done. After lunch, considerably relieved, he went to work. He entered his room that evening with a confident air, but as soon as he looked around, his heart sank. Contrary to instructions, the mover had not picked up the chest. It remained in the corner, just where it had been. This time, Max was more depressed than angry. He sought out a telephone and called up the mover. The man was profusely apologetic. His truck had broken down, he explained, just as he was starting out to pick up the chest. The repairs were nearly completed, however, and he would absolutely be out to carry off the chest the first thing in the morning. Since there was nothing else he could do, Mox thanked him and hung up. Finding himself unusually reluctant to return to his room, he ate a leisurely dinner at a nearby restaurant and later attended a movie. After the movie, he stopped and had a hot chocolate. It was nearly midnight before he got back to his room. In spite of his nightmare of the previous evening, he found himself looking forward to bed. He had lost almost an entire night's sleep, and he was beginning to feel the strain. After assuring himself that the calamander chest was securely locked, he slipped the iron key under his pillow and got into bed. In spite of his uneasiness, he soon fell asleep. Some hours later, he awoke suddenly and sat up. His heart was pounding. For a moment, he was not aware of what had awakened him. Then he heard it. A furious scratching, tapping, thumping sound came from one corner of the room. Trembling violently, he got out of bed, crossed the room, and pressed the button on his reading lamp. Nothing happened. Either the electricity was shut off or the light bulb had burned out. He pulled open a drawer of the lampstand and frantically searched for a candle. 
By the time he found one and applied a match to its wick, the scratching sound had redoubled in intensity. The entire room seemed filled with it. Shuddering, he lifted the candle and started across the room toward the calamander chest. As the wavering light of the candle flickered into the far corner, he saw the finger. It protruded far out of the chest, and it was writhing with furious life. It thrummed and twisted, dug at the chest with its horrible black nail, tapped and turned in an absolute frenzy of movement. Suddenly, as he advanced, it became absolutely still. It hung down limp. Engulfed with terror, Mox was convinced that it had become aware of his approach and was now watching him. When he was halfway across the room, the fingers slowly lifted and deliberately beckoned to him. With a rush of renewed horror, Mox remembered the ghastly events of his dream. Yet, as in the nightmare, he found himself utterly unable to disobey that diabolical summons he went on like a man in a trance. Early the next morning, the mover and his assistant were led into Mox's room by the landlady. Mox had apparently already left for work, but there was no need of his presence since he had already given the mover detailed instructions in regard to the disposal of the chest. The chest, locked but without a key, stood in one corner of the room. The melted wax remains of a candle, burned to the end of its wick, lay nearby. The landlady shook her head. A good way to burn the house down, she complained. I'll have to speak to Mr. Mox, not like him to be so careless. The movers, burdened with the chest, paid no attention to her. The assistant growled as they started down the stairs. Must be lined with lead. Never knew a chest so heavy before. Heavy wood, his companion commented shortly, not wishing to waste his breath. Wonder why he's dumping such a good chest, the assistant asked later as the truck approached an abandoned quarry near the edge of town. The chief mover glanced at him slyly. I guess I know, he said. He bought it of Jason Kinkle, and Kinkle never told him the story on it. But he found out later, I figure, and that's why he's ditching it. The assistant's interest picked up. What's the story, he asked. They drove into the quarry grounds and got out of the truck. Kinkle bought it dirt cheap at an auction, the mover explained as they lifted out the chest. Auction of old Henry Stubberton's furniture. The assistant's eyes widened as they started up a steep slope with the chest. You mean the Stubberton they found murdered in a... in a chest, the mover finished for him. This chest. Neither spoke again until they set down the chest at the edge of a steep quarry shaft. Glancing down at the deep water which filled the bottom of the shaft, the mover wiped the sweat from his face. A pretty sight, they say he was, all doubled up and turning black. Seems he wasn't dead when they shut him in, though. They say he must have tried to claw his way out. When they opened the chest, they found one of his fingers jammed up under the lid near the lock. Tried to pick the lock with his fingernail, it looked like. The assistant shuddered. Let's be rid of it, then. It's bad luck, sure. The mover nodded. Take hold and shove. They strained together and in another second the calamander chest 
slipped over the edge of the quarry and hurtled toward the pool of black water far below. There was one terrific splash, and then it sank from sight like a stone. That's good riddance, and another tenor for me, the mover commented. Oddly enough, however, he never collected the tenor, for after that day, Mr. Ernest Marx dropped completely out of sight. He was never seen or heard of again. The disgruntled mover, never on the best of terms with the police, shrugged off the loss of the tenor and neglected to report the disposal of the chest. And since the landlady had never learned the mover's name, nor where he intended taking the chest, her sparse information was no help in the search. The police concluded that Marx had got into some scrape, changed his name, and effected a permanent change of locale. Okay, that's going to wrap it up for the 200. We appreciate you stopping by and listening in with us here on the couch. And we hope you'll keep coming back. If you enjoyed this episode, please check out some of the other episodes we have to offer, as well as new episodes, which are uploaded every Monday and Wednesday. We are listener-supported, as we have always been by you, the listeners. We thank you one and all for your support. 200 episodes. Thank you very much. Okay, Wednesday, we are going to be having uh, another episode of Suspense, and we hope that you'll tune in and check that out, as well as some interesting things coming up next week. Tune in, check us out, see what we got. This has been Couch and Coffee Table. Until next time, be good to yourself.